Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and this week we are talking about walking uh, and how to do it, the the legs, the one in front of the other, etc. And in order to do so, uh, we're going to be talking to an expert walker uh, or hiker, I suppose might be a better way of phrasing it, uh, Carrot Quinn. And so we're going to be talking to her about all this stuff, uh, Carrot writes a bunch of books about hiking and does a bunch of hiking. And so I'm really excited because this has been on my mind a lot. But first, we are a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts. And here's a jingle from another show on the network. Listening to Dissident Island Radio. Check out www.dissidentisland.org for downloads and more. Okay, we're back. Um, so, Carrot, if you could introduce yourself with your your name, your pronouns, and then I guess kind of like your background in hiking, through hiking, that kind of stuff. My name is Carrot Quinn, and my pronouns are she or they. And I got into long distance hiking in 2013. And long distance hiking is different from other kinds of backpacking because uh, I, you're just out for longer, I guess. And and usually also you're on trails that have a really specific weather window, which means that you need to hike more miles per day than you would on a more leisurely backpacking trip in order to finish in a certain weather window or because the water sources are farther apart. So you need to hike a certain miles a day to get to the water sources, which means that you end up using different gear because when you're out for that long and hiking that many miles, it's a lot more strain on your joints. And so uh, in order to be able to do it, you need to have lighter gear that puts less strain on your joints or else you get overuse injuries. So, and you also wear different shoes. So that's this whole different kind of way of walking in the wilderness, which I got into because I'd always backpacked with like a heavy backpack and I was always in pain. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered this style and I wasn't in pain anymore. And I was like, oh my God, if I do this, I can just like live outside and sleep on the ground every night and I won't be in pain. So then I got really into it and I hiked the PCT 2013, which what's the PCT? Uh, the Pacific Crest Trail, which is mm -hmm. 2,650 or 60 miles, depending on how you count. And it takes five months to hike. And then um, I got really obsessed with it for a while. Uh, so I've done, I've hiked uh, 11,000 miles. So I've hiked from Mexico to Canada three times. And I've also walked across Utah and Arizona and um, a bunch of, done a bunch of other like shorter hikes. And I've hiked finished trails where there's like a path on the ground that you walk, like the Pacific Crest Trail. And I've hiked trails where there's not a path on the ground and you're just navigating through canyons and washes and stuff. And then I've also made my own routes, which is where you make, you look at the maps and figure out mm -hmm. where you can walk and then you follow the path that you created. As I say, that's wild, but I guess that's literally the point <laughs> um, that it's wild. Okay. And then you've, you've written about this too, right? Yeah. So I, uh, I have a writing career more or less most years. <laughs> I make my living as a writer. Mm -hmm. um, and I was able to build that by writing about long distance hiking because it's a pretty popular niche. I've been writing uh, my whole life. I always wanted to be a writer. And in my 20s, I wrote zines. Mm -hmm. And then I started blogging in 2008. And then I started long distance hiking in 2013. And so every one of these hikes I've ever done, all 11,000 miles I've hiked, I've written a blog post every single day. And so that's how I built my writing career because then people started reading those and people love reading about long distance hiking, you know, cause yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's hard to get time off work. It's hard, like it's hard to get the gear. It's hard to like access. And so people being able to read that from the comfort of their home is like really nice. And so 
then I wrote a book about my first long distance hike, which is, it's called Through Hiking Will Break Your Heart. And that book is great because I made so many bad choices. So it's like a very good story. <laughs> Cause I was, you know, the best, the best stories come from when you're like completely brand new at something yeah, and everything goes like horribly awry. Those are like the best stories. So uh, I wrote that book. And then my second book was actually a memoir about growing up in Alaska and my years riding freight trains. Mm-hmm. And that came out uh, 2021. And then I just finished a well, What's that one called? The Sunset Route. Cool. And it's kind of sad. It's not like the happiest book, but whatever. But then uh, I just finished a speculative fiction novel about this young person that is like fleeing this destabilizing city and riding her bike across the country trying to get to Nevada. So I'm editing that right now. Oh my God, is right it out now. yet? Can I read it? <laughs> no. I hope, yeah, I hope it'll come out someday. <laughs> but I, uh, I don't know what the title is either, but I'm editing it right now. And if I self-publish, uh, hopefully I can get it out by the end of the year. Um, and I'm leaning towards self-publishing. So we'll see. Hopefully it'll be out sooner rather than later. Okay. Well, uh, let's talk about that off camera. <laughs> I, uh, Great. I, I think a lot about publishing speculative fiction and I, I do it sometimes. Um, yeah, you write speculative fiction too. Yeah. We could just um, talk about that for hours and hours. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I also like talking about that. Can I can I out us to the audience about how we know each other? Is that yeah, totally. You, you seem pretty public about it. Um, yeah, I first met Carrot. Actually, I don't remember if it's where we first met, but um, we lived together in a, a squat in the South Bronx in two thousand four, and so we've I've been following Carrot's career from afar since then. Being like, oh shit, fuck yeah, another crust punk who became a writer. Um, <laughs> And, um, and I've also been following Margaret's career and like hearing little updates about her life over the years and being like, oh, that's where Margaret is. That's what Margaret's doing. So it's super <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really excited to, to have you on to talk about this. And I admit one of the reasons I'm really excited to have you on about this, I guess there's a couple of reasons. Um, one is because this topic is really interesting to me. It has been for a while, um, you know, during... Uh, say the last presidential election, when there was a decent chance of a fascist coup, and there was you know an attempt at one, it, myself and a lot of other people probably had to sit there and think, what would be involved if I had to go on foot a long way to get away from here, right? And I think that that kind of thing is probably on a lot of people's minds, uh, especially on a like state by state basis right now, as a lot of states become increasingly un- unwelcoming and things. Um, and of course, at the moment, people are allowed to leave states by cars and stuff, but whatever. Uh, We'll get to that. But the other reason I'm interested in is because I've recently gotten more into hiking and I've been obsessively watching YouTube videos of like through hikers and mostly these people really annoy me, but the stuff is really interesting. And, and your name gets mentioned a lot in the sort of like um, uh, pantheon of, uh, of through hiking writers as the people that everyone's like, well, I'm no carrot Quinn or whatever. Um, so I just think that's really cool. That was part of why I'm excited to talk to you. So what is involved? And uh, this is a very broad question, but what is involved in deciding that you want to go on a very long hike? What is involved? Well, so I really love this intersection of topics that we're talking about because those are the two things that occupy my brain all the time is Mm -hmm. overland travel by foot and um near future societal collapse (laughs) so Mm -hmm. yeah you're writing um, a book about yeah yeah and and in the novel i just wrote she starts out on her bike but the bike breaks eventually then she's just on foot and one thing i love while thinking about this stuff is um like for example have you seen the last of us yeah so they're they're on a long overland journey. A lot of it is on foot. And there are all these plot holes, in my opinion, because there are things about the way they're traveling on foot that just aren't realistic. Like their footwear is uncomfortable. They never drink water. Mm-hmm. None of their gear is waterproof. Like they're not properly dressed for the weather. So I think that's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, they, t- they have these tiny packs, but not, yeah. not in an ultralight way. Their tiny backpacks are just these bottomless pits of whatever they need. Somehow they have batteries, which you like you wouldn't have batteries. <laughs> but um so I think it's really interesting. I, something I'm also really fascinated about, like thinking about near future collapse is how we're going to be living in this hybrid time where we'll have all these materials available to us that are from this society where things are mass produced, but we'll be in a society where things are no longer going to be mass produced. So we'll mm-hmm. be sort of like transitioning over the course of decades from like having access to certain materials 
to not having access to any of those materials. And that's like really interesting to me. And like The Last of Us, it's like set 20 years after collapse. So like a lot of the stuff they have access in the show, I don't think they would have anymore. They like a little bit talk about it. We're like, oh, the gasoline isn't quite as good. We have to stop all the time to siphon. But then they just kind of like, and then we just drive, you know? Yeah. But like the batteries, you know, like for their flashlights, like they just. Yeah. But uh, yes, that's really interesting to me. Thinking about, for example, like a long journey, like right now, the only reason I can long distance hike is because I have all this really high tech gear because I, you know, 30 years ago to do a trail like the Pacific Crest Trail, all of the gear was super heavy. So you had to be sort of this like elite athlete in a way, like not just Mm -hmm. anybody couldn't do it because everything was so heavy. It was really hard on your body. Like it was brutal. And now because of this like really high tech gear we have, our packs are much lighter and we just wear wear trail runners. And so it's much more accessible. And so that's the only reason I can do it uh, physically. And the only reason I enjoy it, like I wouldn't enjoy it otherwise. And so it's interesting to think about like, you know, in the future, what people would use. But to answer your question, if you wanted to do like, you know, where we are, like pre-class, if you wanted Mm -hmm. to go on a long hike, you, uh, you know, the thing that's one of the things that's hardest for people is getting the time off. Mm -hmm. I like trails that are more than a month long because walking long distances is our special secret human superpower. Like no other animal can walk long distances the way we can. Like -hmm. people think that that's how we evolved from apes as we started like walking our prey to death. Cause a lot of animals like persistence. Yeah. A lot of animals like sprint and then they sleep and they sprint and they sleep, but we can just like zombie forward, like Mm -hmm. endlessly, like just fucking zombies until our prey just like collapses with exhaustion. (laughs) It, It takes, but a lot of us, like the way we live, we're not, we don't spend a lot of time walking every day. And so it takes time to sort of unlock that ability and get our, like our tendons. That's like the Mm -hmm. biggest thing, like our joints used to it. And so if you were going to do a trail like the PCT, for example, that's like a five month trail, you would start out really slow, like say doing mm-hmm. like 15 miles a day, you know, you would train beforehand so that you could do 15 miles a day. And then you would start doing that. And then if you started feeling any pain in your joints, you would take days off or pull way back. And then mm-hmm. after about a month, your joints get used to it. And that like superpower is unlocked. And I've seen this happen so many times because so many people the PCT is their first trail and they start right off the couch and they're not athletes. You don't have to be an athlete. Like I'm not an athlete. I'm just a regular person. And as long as you don't get injured or have some sort of illness, like you can unlock this superpower. And then it's like, it doesn't hurt anymore. And you can just walk and walk and walk. And it's really cool. So I, that's why I recommend doing a trail that's more than a month because it takes a month for the pain to go away and to feel like you've d- unlocked that superpower that all I think all humans have, you know, barring injury yeah. or illness. And so if you hike like a five-month trail or a three-month trail, then you have a month of discomfort, but then you have several months where you get to exist in this really cool body. But it's hard to get the time off. So a lot of people yeah. who long distance hike work seasonally or they'll, you know, do the kind of work where you can like in tech or as an engineer, as a nurse or whatever, for where you can work for a period of time, like a couple of years and then quit and then go back to work. The biggest demographics on a long trail are people just out of college and retired people. Cause those are the two people who have the easiest time finding that chunk of time. That makes a lot of sense to me. I like, I've always kind of wanted to do this and that's never quite been a high enough priority. And this brings me to not the most important question, but my main question about it. I know that you can't through hike any of the existing like Triple Crown, Maine, Pacific Coast Trail, Appalachian Trail, and then whatever the third one is, Continental Divide Trail? What's the third one? Yeah. Yeah. I know you can't bring a dog with you on those three because they go through national parks. But what do you do about dogs? I mean, like, because in my mind, my dog has way more energy than me. But I'm realizing that my dog has way more energy than me, not necessarily in the sustained persistence hunter way that you're talking about. Um, exactly. And so, There's, like, yeah. So I'm curious, what 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 is a, a, a limit of, I mean, obviously every dog's going to be different and things like that, but like, can you through hike with a dog if you're going way slower and you're not doing the like seasonal running thing? You're just like, yeah, as somewhere there's a question in there. Yeah, totally. So you you can, people do bring their dogs on the long trails. You, you kind of need some a support person so you can hand off your dog before you go through the no dog sections and then get mm-hmm. your dog back. It's considered cruel 
to bring a dog on a five month hike because the way they exercise is so different than the way that we exercise. Right. They, they go really hard and then they need more rest than we do. Like in Alaska, they have the Iditarod, which is this big, big sled dog race. Yeah. And it just happened. It just finished. And it's a thousand mile long, a thousand miles long. <clears throat> and the person who just won did it in eight days. So his mm-hmm. dogs ran over a hundred miles a day. And so these dogs wow. trained really hard. And that is like the pinnacle of like what they can do. Yeah. So they could go really far, but they c- still can't necessarily go 20 miles a day every day for five months. Right. And so it's actually really rare for someone to through hike with a dog. You can do it, but it goes against their natural like kind of the way their energy is throughout the day and so one reason people it's discouraged is because it's really hard to know if your dog is too hot it's hard to know if your dog is tired like you're a lot of dogs will follow their person you know to the point of injury and like you know because they just want to stay with you so um people do it uh but it's rare it's not natural for them the way like we can do it and thrive And they just kind of are low-key suffering, maybe about to break. It's hard to tell. Yeah, no. And and so I guess I'm kind of curious. There's like two scenarios, I imagine. One is like, because I, I, you know, there's no one I can leave my dog with for a long period of time. So I just sort of assume I will not be through hiking anytime soon, right? Because, you know, uh, there's a a creature I'm responsible for and, and no one else is currently responsible for that creature. But I'm like, is there a sense of like, okay, you don't want to take your dogs on a month long hike. Do you want to take your dogs on a two week hike? Do you want to take your dogs only like, like my dog loves going on my day hikes with me. Um, and from when I was like, a, a you know, an oogle, a crusty traveler, like a lot of the dogs that I was around, I mean, obviously not all of them. Some of them were treated very badly, but many of the dogs were very happy in that they got to be with their person all day and they were always like exercising and stuff. But that wasn't like we're walking 20 miles today. That's often like we're walking five miles today. We're, you know, hitchhiking. We're doing all these other things. I'm just wondering if you have a sense of, one, the limit in terms of like the now, and then two, if there's a a sense of what you would think for if your protagonist escaping an apocalypse has a dog, like what are ways to work around that? Like I could come, I could imagine like, like if I had to leave, right, do I get a dog backpack? It's about 45 pounds. I would be sad. But like, if I, you know, if I'm not hiking for fun, I'm hiking for, I got to get somewhere. Right. Yeah. People, so people hiking the long distance trails, there's like a standard Mm -hmm. sort of blanket mileage that, that varies, but people generally say like 20 miles a day is like Mm -hmm. kind of the standard. And so over the course of like a month, three months, five months, so that different dog breeds are different, but -hmm. depending on your dog, that could be too much for your dog. Like your dog might need more rest days. Well, like right. you, maybe your dog could do 20 miles a day for three days, but then they would need like a day or two off, you know? And right. so what you would have to do is instead of being tied to the weather window of the trail, you would be tied to how your dog is doing. So you would right. just have to really be in touch with all your dog's signs. Like, does your dog like know how to tell if your dog is too hot, if your dog's feet hurt? all these different things. And then you would just have to adjust your travel based on your dog. So you just wouldn't, you wouldn't, yeah, you wouldn't necessarily be able to hike the PCT in the five month window. And you would end up, if you were in an arid area, you would end up carrying more water because Mm -hmm. um, if you go slower, then it's farther between water sources because the West is so dry. So you would carry more water, but yeah, you would just plan the hike much differently and it would be like your own journey with your dog. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I, because I, I realized I, I pretty, I pretty quickly disabused myself of the notion that I was going to be hiking the Appalachian Trail or PCT or anything anytime soon. Secretly, this podcast is me just asking people advice about my own life and problems and then hoping it's universalizable in some ways. But I like, that makes sense to me. And then it, it does seem like, you know, everything I'm reading about what you're talking about, about like, like hiding, hiking with lighter packs and all of that and how it has all these advantages and being able to go further and being more sustainable and all of these things. And it does seem like a lot of the choices that people would have to make in different survival scenarios might counteract that. Like might, cause if you're talking about like, okay, if I was hiking through the desert with a dog, I need way more water, which means I'm carrying a heavier pack. And then also if I'm out longer, I might need different, a different level of survival equipment. 
it seems like it would like kind of ex- escalate pack weight very quickly. Yeah, but I think that the sort of minimalism that one mm. learns, like it's sort of the strategic minimalism that you learn mm. when you do a five month hike, because all you have to think about every day is like what you're carrying and how heavy it feels. And so you mm-hmm. get really good at like, just it's like strategy. And so I think that would carry over where even if you, you know, didn't have all these high tech materials, were in the desert, had a dog, like all these different things, your pack would still end up lighter than if you didn't use this sort of like really fun strategic <laughs> thing that I'm sure uh-huh. you've encountered on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'd, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it would be heavier, but then you would just work around that. Like if your pack is heavier, you mm-hmm. uh, don't go as many miles a day because it's harder on your joints Yeah, and you just, you know, you just work, work around that too. Like I last fall was my second season uh, hunting in Alaska, like tagging along on my friends' hunts. And I've mm-hmm. never had to carry a pack as heavy as I do hunting. And that's been like a whole new learning curve being like, okay, this is a 60 pound pack. Like those are, yeah. I can only go this many miles, you know, I have to like really be careful, like all these different things. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is the thing that I, cause I, you know, I come from this background of like failed train hopping and regular hitchhiking and like these like long distance walks and, and things like that, but not hiking and I would need what I need to sleep and all of these things. And so, you know, we used to kind of make fun of <laughs> ultralight hikers who are like, you know, shaving off every ounce of what they could. And it's like, well, I knew Pogo Dave who traveled the big metal Pogo stick or whatever. Right. And, you know, walked across the country, pushing a shopping cart and shit. But then you just realize how different these setups are and what their goals are is so completely different. And so yeah, I don't I don't know quite how to phrase it, but I'm so interested in the difference between the 60 pound hunting pack and the like 9.8 pound, you know, backpacking pack or whatever. And it 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 did. I, I ran across these people and I my first thought was like, well, fuck that. Just like carry what you need, whatever, you know. And then slowly when you see the people who are like less annoying about it, you're like, oh, I think I get it. I think I understand like why they're doing this, you know. Yeah. Um, It's about injury prevention, not being in pain and what your goal is. So if your goal is to finish a five month trail, like hiking 12 hours a day for five months, your chance of injury is really high. So the lighter your pack is to an extent, there is like a, you know, the lighter your pack is the less, the lower your chance of injury and the less pain you'll be in. So it actually really increases your enjoyment. The only caveat being the, the rules I, I tell people like, cause I do long distance hiking coaching and I do these like guided trips where I help people like mm-hmm. make their gear lists and stuff. The rules, here are the rules. You need to be mm-hmm. warm, well-fed, like comfortable enough at night to sleep well and have, uh, be prepared for all the different weather you're going to encounter at that season in that area. And as long as you can, like, as long as your gear fits those rules, you meet those guidelines, like the lighter your pack is the more fun you're going to have. Yeah. It makes sense to me. I just have so many questions about ultralight stuff. It's just so fascinating to me. It, it seems like one of the things that people go without, to me, seems like emergency equipment. Like, because I think about, it seems like I'm watching people, and, and I, I expect I'm wrong. That's why I'm, I'm presenting this to you, because you have a lot of experience with this and have tried different types of hiking. But it's like, if there's something that I keep around just in case, Right in case something terrible happens or whatever. I don't use it on a daily basis. And so it starts becoming one of those things that you could imagine getting rid of. And then you're like, but then when you need it, you need it. And so it it seems like that is what like I worry about when people talk about like barely having first aid kits and shit like that, you know, or, or the kind of gear that if like the weather gets a lot worse unexpectedly, because if it, it seems to me that if you have this this very minimalistic setup that works for most days, but then it doesn't work for like the sudden really bad weather days, it doesn't seem like it's a good enough piece of gear. But maybe that is being taken into consideration and I'm just like being annoyed at people or like retroactively defending the fact that I used to carry this ridiculously heavy bag and I like injured my chest with it once when I was like 28. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's the thing is if your pack is too heavy, it will injure you and that will ruin your hike. So it doesn't matter what emergency preparedness stuff you're carrying. Like the emergency right. is that you ruined your hike and you had to get off trail and your hike right. is ruined. So 
So th- the the thing is, things are knowable. Like the world is knowable. Like when you mm-hmm. go to drive your car, you know what's likely to go wrong, and you know what would be a freak accident that you're not going to prepare for. Like right. the stuff you have in your car. Like my car burns oil, so I carry oil. I carry mm-hmm. coolant just because my car is old. I carry like uh, jumper cables. It's winter, so I carry a sleeping bag, you know, because I'm like, I'm in Alaska. I have an old car. These are the things that are likely to go wrong. I don't carry anything, uh, for if I get struck by lightning, because there's not, Mm -hmm. I mean, if I lived like in the high mountains in Colorado in July, I would have to consider lightning, but in Alaska, in South Central Alaska, you don't think about lightning. I don't care anything for shark attacks. I don't, you know, I carry bear spray for bears, but I, so it's just knowing what's likely to happen versus freak accidents that, don't make sense to be prepared for. So people might not carry a generic first aid kit, but they do carry supplies for all of the medical problems that actually happen regularly. Like I don't carry just like some generic first aid kit from REI. Right. uh, Because I don't know what to do if I break my leg. If I break my leg, like I need a helicopter, you know, But, but that would be a real freak accident. That's extremely unlikely to happen. But what does happen and what can end your hike and does end people's hike a lot are mm-hmm. infected blisters, sprained ankles, things like that. And I carry stuff and I have treated stuff like that like multiple times and I always have what I need. Or like gear failures, like I carry mm-hmm. dental floss with a needle inside, which I learned from writing trades. Hell yeah. um, and that's come in handy. So I always have, uh, and then things for chafe because chafe happens a lot and can be yeah. really painful. So that can get you yeah. off trail. So people actually, they might not have like a, they might not have something for like a trauma wound, which would be like- right. I don't even know what a trauma wound, I don't even know what I'm saying, but like, or a puncture wound. Yeah. Uh, but that would be like a real freak accident. But they do have, in my experience, people do have stuff for the things that actually happen. And the same with the weather, because the weather in every spot on earth, for whatever season you have to be there, is knowable. You can research it. You can know what the trends are, even with climate change. Right. You can know what's likely to happen. You can talk to other hikers. Every long distance trail every year has a Facebook group and people as they're hiking will post in that Facebook group. So you can know like, oh, I'm climbing it to 9,000 feet tomorrow. And these people ahead of me say there's ice. I should have micro spikes or like there's a storm coming in and the people ahead of me say that the river is really swollen and it's going to be hard to cross. So I should like take a day off and wait for the river to go down. So it's just, it's instead of carrying a bunch of stuff and having no idea where you are, what's happening and just having all this stuff, you just do your research and uh, like long distance hikers obsessively research when they're on trail, because that's all you have to think about all the time. So as long as, I mean, you can be reckless and not have any of that stuff, but then that will affect your chances of actually finishing, which is what everyone wants to do because you want to have this like fun, full immersion experience. So generally uh, in my experience, people are prepared, even though they don't have like generic first aid kits. No, that makes sense. I think I'm, I'm, I have a like defensive maximalism. You know, it's not a maximum. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on what you're trying to do. Like, it's not a like, I'm going hiking, I need a folding saw, you know, although if I'm going to go live in the woods for a while, I want a folding saw. But like, you know, it's a very different goal. Yeah. So I guess I wonder. um, I guess. Okay. Can I mm -hmm. say one more thing? Yeah, yeah, please. They say say that you pack your fears Mm -hmm. and. So your goal, so, so say you're afraid of getting hurt on trail. So Mm -hmm. you're like, I should bring all this extra stuff, right? That extra weight will hurt you. So that's the irony. So that's like the irony in all of it is like, and, and the thing is a lot of people start long distance hiking that way, because that's kind of the way we all learned about the outdoors, because we're an urban humans are urban, like humans in the U S are urban. We don't, we're not little feral creatures that live in the woods. We don't have these like intimate relationships with like what the wind is doing or like when the poppies are blooming, you know? And so we go out there and we don't have any idea what the fuck is going on or where we are. And, um, so we, we want to pack our fears. And then as soon as you start a long distance hike, you, every ounce you're carrying, (laughs) hurts and so all day every day all you have to think about is sort of as you're being like punished for carrying all your fears all you have to think about is like what do I actually need and so that's really common for people to start with really heavy packs and then really quickly they're like okay I know what I really need and what I don't need and you also start to learn what you as an individual need on trail because everybody's different and everyone has like a different um sort of comfort zone yeah. So, but it's a process because we we're not 
we're we're urban. We're like we don't know what the fuck is going on in nature. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the outdoorsy types fo- type folks will also overpack, but kind of in a different way. But it's more of the like, it's not not through hiking. It's the like bushcraft version. It's the like I'm going to go build a a cabin version you know um which i think is overkill for most people like most people when they're imagining like disaster scenarios and the escape from disaster scenarios you don't need to go build a log cabin in the woods you need to like get to a state where they're not trying to kill you for being trans or whatever and it is a different thing so i guess i take back my own caveat okay yeah i think i think uh long distance hikers love to make fun of bushcrafters and probably bushcrafters love to make fun of ultralight backpackers. I, you know, I was mm-hmm. thinking about bushcraft the other day because I was, I was skiing or I was trying to ski cause I'm learning. So I don't really know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I was just looking at my gear and looking at my friend's gear. And I was like, everything we have right now is because of plastic, like literally everything. And then I was like, yeah. what would this even be like if we didn't have plastic? I was like, we'd be wearing like wool and leather and like animal skins and w- yeah. everything would be made out of wood. And then I started thinking about bushcraft and I was like, that's kind of what it is. Bushcraft is like, outdoor stuff without synthetic materials in a way. Yeah. Which is like an interesting way to think about it, which is really different. It's really different. And so if you're, if your gear is just heavier, if there's just different things you can do, it's like a, just a whole different kind of thing. Yeah. I really know that's such a fascinating way of thinking about the difference between yeah, bushcraft and, and hiking. And then like, you know, and I think it's funny because it's like, if someone decides that they're like, I'm going to get into outdoors walk stuff there's all of these different cultures and ways of looking at it and you have the bushcraft version and you have the ultralight hiking version and then you have like traditional backpacking seems like sort of the weird in between and then you also have like the tactical version where it's like this is how you get into enemy territory with like you know when you're stuck carrying like 30 pounds of ammunition or whatever the fuck and it's like it's so interesting to me how it, it breaks down even to different like shelter types right like the bushcrafters like Although it does go full circle. I would say that bushcrafters and ultralight hikers are the ones who are like a tarp is all I need or whatever versus like uh, traditional backpacking where you're like, I want a fucking tent, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's really interesting. Our our different relationships with nature in this year of our Lord 2023 in, yeah. in, the, in the US. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's like, there's ways that people have to think about kind of all of them if they're trying to prepare. Although I, I can see how you know, you can get lost over preparing and thinking about every single possible thing that could go wrong. And if you're traveling in a vehicle, it's a little bit easier to do that, right? It's a little bit easier to be prepared for every possible contingency or whatever. Can I tell you an interesting story? Yeah, I I love thinking about this stuff. So, so, so we, we live in a time in human history where we're very urban, the most urban we've ever been. Mm -hmm. And so our, so a lot of people don't spend much time outdoors at all, which you know, is like, they just can't, like they don't have access. Like there's so many different reasons. And the people who do spend time outdoors access it through these really different channels that almost like aren't communicating with each other. Yeah. The, the, the tactical hunter versus the ultralight backpacker. And it's really interesting because they, they've developed like outdoors cultures that are so different. Like in Alaska, for example, there are a lot of grizzly bears, which Grizzly bears are dangerous, but they're also very knowable. So you can kind of get to know grizzly bear culture and then you can do sort of like best practices and your chances of being attacked by a bear become extremely low. And so depending on what you're doing, different people have ideas about what those best practices are. Bear spray versus 10 millimeter. I mean, bear spray works better. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. (laughs) But, but for example... For example, a few years ago, I was going on like a four day backpacking trip in the Brooks Range with some of my friends from Anchorage mm-hmm. and the Brooks Range is in the Arctic. It's really remote. And ironically, bears, the grizzlies are much less dangerous up there because the area we were going has no salmon. So there were there are much fewer than fewer grizzlies. There are just way fewer grizzlies. And also we're north of tree line. So there's no tree cover. And when grizzlies are dangerous, if you see a grizzly from a distance and it knows what you are, if it mm-hmm. can smell you, it will run away like so fast. Yeah. But if you surprise a grizzly at close range, they get like, air. they feel like they have to like defend their honor. And that's when they attack. It's like, okay. if you like, they think it's like a challenge. And they're like, no, I must fight you. So you want to avoid brush and trees 
in mm-hmm. areas where there are grizzlies, like as much as you can avoid brush and trees. So the Arctic is north of tree lane. So it's a really safe place because there are fewer grizzlies. And if you see one, it's like really far away. And the two of you can just give each other a wide berth because they don't, they're actually very scared. Yeah. So I was going on a trip with my friends and who are all from Anchorage, which is actually a very dangerous place because there are tons of grizzlies and like, at, like once a year <laughs> someone dies and, okay. uh, But my friends were like, oh my gosh, we're going to the Arctic. Like, what are we going to do about the grizzlies? And I was like, you guys, like, it's actually safer there. There's fewer bears. And they're like, we should bring ursacs, which are these like Kevlar bags that the grizzlies can't bite through. It's like a bear can, but lighter. They're great. They're like, we should bring ursacs and we should line the ursacs with these scent proof plastic bags. And we should put the ursacs really far from our camp. And I was like, we can do all that, but actually it's like safer there than where we live. Like, Hiking the Arctic is safer than going huh. on a day hike in Anchorage, like 20 times safer. Yeah. And uh, and I was like, you guys go on day hikes all the time. Anyway, we went and we were all like super careful. Like, you know, it when we set up camp, we would go cook like on a hill over there. And then we would yeah. put our food in our earth sack and we could go put it on a hill over there. And then our tents would be here. And it, it would be like, you know, we would be upwind of where we cooked and like all these different things. And I was like, okay, great. You know, that's fine. And then a few weeks later, I went on a moose hunting trip with my friend Birch, who his whole his whole way of knowing the outdoors is hunting. Right. And which is also really common in Alaska. And there were five of us and we were hiking eight miles into this uh, drainage through willow brush with pack rafts. And then we were going to get the moose and we were going to pack raft out. Okay. So we got in and he got the moose um, and we processed it. And, you know, we were covered in blood. The pack mm-hmm. rafts were covered in blood. Like everything was covered in blood. And we had these huge pieces of moose in cotton game de- bags that were soaked in blood, like piled in our pack rafts. We got, <laughs> we got to camp. Um, oh, no one has bear spray. I'm the only one with bear spray. Uh-huh. You know, they have rifles. But what good is a rifle going to do when you're in your sleeping bag? You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like, totally. Like that's when the bear could come for yeah. your blood or whatever. Yeah. And we get to camp and we like take these huge pieces of moose and lay them out on the gravel bar just overnight out in the open. And we all have Mm -hmm. our tent set up. And I was like, Hey Birch, do you ever use an ursac? And he was like, what's an ursac? (laughs) And we, Oh, and our moose hunt was in an Uh area with way more grizzlies and there was brush everywhere. And we saw like three grizzlies. Yeah. And it was just so funny because they, they didn't, they weren't concerned at all. And I think part of it is that guns give people this like false sense of confidence around yeah. bears, even though with bears, like things happen really fast and you need yeah. something you can grab really fast and you don't, it's, if you need to be like a sharpshooter, yeah. it's not very accessible. Like you need something that anyone can use. And, and also another part of it, oh, go if, ahead. You, if you shoot a bear, it, it, I'm not speaking from experience. I'm speaking from reading about this. There's been a bunch of studies that shooting bears is not a particularly effective way of stopping bears in the short term. Um, and pepper spray, bear spray is a very effective, like, even if a bear is charging and I manage to shoot it, it doesn't, that doesn't mean I'm safe. Yeah, you have to have a certain gun. I don't yeah. know that much about guns, but you have to have a certain yeah. gun and you have to sh- shoot it in a certain place. So, yeah. like, the, the odds of all of that happening, like, extremely fast. Yeah. Whereas bear spray, yeah, you spray them and they're like, ah, it's burning, you know, and then they run yeah. away. Have you had to but, do that? Uh, have you sprayed a bear? No. Okay. But I've been around a lot of bears, but I haven't yeah. yet had I mean, to spray I'm, one. I'm glad. I'm just curious. Anyway, yeah. I interrupted you twice. Yeah. Please continue. Yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah. So his, his, his conceptualization of like what the danger was. Oh, that's the other thing. So I think part of the reason hunters don't, this is my theory. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason hunters don't think about bears is because the guns give them this false sense of confidence, even though bears do sometimes attack hunters. The other thing is bears have bear culture, like in different areas, bears learn different things and pass that knowledge on to their cubs. Like some places, if you do a bear hang, the bear doesn't know what it is and it can't get it. Other places, bears are like really good at getting bear hangs, you know? Right. And I think that bears know when hunting season is and they know what hunters smell like. That's my theory. And they're um, like, I'm staying the fuck away from them. They all have guns. Yeah, I don't know if that's true, Yeah, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was true. And that's one reason that hunters don't have to take the same precautions. I mean, it's sort of interesting because it's like, okay, guns are notorious for a false sense of security. But in this case, it's like, even though it's sort of a false sense of security, it's not the right way to handle a bear. 
maybe that kind of like confidence of walking through the woods with a group of people and doing your thing, maybe that's a better way to live. Like there's also, yeah. So when an animal is a predator, it moves differently mm-hmm. walking than when an animal is a prey animal and hunters move the way predators move yeah. and hikers tend to move, I don't know, all sorts of ways, but hunters move the way predators move. And so yeah. that could be something that communicates to the bear that these are hunters Yeah, and to be more scared. I don't know. <laughs> no, that's so interesting. I'm really fascinated by those different ways of interacting with the forest. And like, cause it's like, you know, like, like I live rurally, but it doesn't actually, I mean, it provides me access to nature and that like, I can walk out my door and there's a lot more trees than houses. I can see one house and I can see 10,000 trees you know? Um, but, but I'm also, there's also just like private land everywhere. So it's like, I actually can't go hiking out my door. I'm as far away from hiking here as, as if I lived in a, like, not a big city, but like a, a medium city, you know, like I, when I want a good scenic five mile hike, I drive an hour. It's not as many miles because rural roads take you forever to get anywhere. But it's just such a different way of interacting with like, because then, and then all of like folks around here are a lot more likely to drive down eight with ATV, go like ATV and shit like that rather than like specifically go hiking. But there are still people who are interacting with the woods constantly. And so it's like, it's in my mind, I feel like I'm like trying to find, I'm on this like quest to find out which like cultures, uh, way of interacting with the wild and specifically around like gear, honestly is like the best for the like preparedness person. And this is obviously going to be completely different depending on what your fucking threat model is, where you live, what your goals are. But I, I think I'm subconsciously doing it. I'm trying to be like, do I want to be like a hunter? Do I want to be like a tactical bro? Do I want to be like an ultralight hiker? Do I want to be like an oogle? Like, you know, like which which method? So, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about what you just said. I think mm-hmm. what I w- this would be my strategy, which maybe yeah. is the path I'm taking. And as the goal of me asking you things is to find your strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Is uh, because I also think, well, I don't know if this is exactly what you believe, but I think that, you know, all supply chains and infrastructure and grids and things are going to collapse in the next few decades. But uh, yeah, long enough timeline. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, I think if one learns the strategy of ultralight backpacking, which relies Mm -hmm. heavily on really high tech gear that is currently being manufactured using these intensive processes that rely on supply chains and things. Mm -hmm. If one learns ultralight backpacking and hunting sort of strategy gear Mm -hmm. and like bushcraft, I think between those three skill sets, one would have the best chance of creating this like hybrid model for like, say if you needed to walk across the country, like Mm -hmm. in the last of us, in the in their walk across the country so their their world it's like 20 years post collapse of supply chains manufacturing like all those different things yeah and they uh i don't think they're carrying the right gear so so knowing what they more or less like guessing what they had access to some changes i would have made is they're wearing like leather boots i think uh Mm -hmm. ellie's wearing like what are they called maybe chucks but i can't remember yeah, Chuck Taylors. <laughs> I think. I can't remember. Yeah. Like if they have access to shoes, obviously, which maybe is unrealistic, mm-hmm. but in the show they have access to shoes, I would get some running shoes or trail runners. And then their their backpacks are made of like heavy, looks like heavy canvas. Mm-hmm. And I would get um, a backpack made of a lighter weight material. And then I would line it with something like a trash bag to make it waterproof. Because that's what I do now. I just carry yeah. a trash bag, fold it up, and I use that. And then they didn't have any, they weren't like filtering their water. No. And and also all of their layers seemed to be cotton, which eventually, you know, in the future, we'll get to a point where we'll, we'll just have like natural materials again. Yeah. But if you still have access to like a cotton, like denim jacket, you can probably still find synthetic layers, which are right. much smarter when it's cold and wet. So I would have them wearing synthetic layers if they could. No, that... That makes a lot of sense to me. I like, okay, but I've, I've read again, I expect I'm wrong. I'm running things past you for this reason. I've read that one of the reasons that people, that people wear trail runners, but they sort of expect them to not last 
necessarily even a full through hike as compared to uh, like hiking boots, which are expected to last like multiple through hikes. Am I, am I wrong about a durability difference between these types of shoes? You're right. So the trade-off is with hiking boots, they last a long time, but they turn your feet to hamburger if you're walking very far day after day. So like mm-hmm. in The Last of Us, they were walking, I mean, just like guessing by like how far they walked. They were walking yeah. all day, every day, day after day. So in that circumstance, the hiking boots would last, but they would destroy your feet and maybe keep you from being able to continue on your journey. So I guess the question would be like... Right. Like the the way I long distance hike right now, I change my trail runners every 400 miles because that's when the cushion gets more compact. And so they don't provide as much cushion. So I'll get more mm-hmm. foot pain. But if I was in a situation where I didn't have access to a lot of trail runners, I would just wear them for longer. And then, mm-hmm. another, so, so yeah, I guess it would be a question of, can you do, can you eventually get to a point where your feet have adjusted to leather boots so that you can do that many miles day after day because traditional backpacking people just didn't do as many miles day after day that's my Um, yeah yeah or there's also you know there's a lot of different so like maybe they're only going eight miles a day but they went really far. I don't remember, but I think they went that's from like magic. the East Coast. <laughs> yeah. But they went from the East Coast to like Wyoming. So No, I think they I break down and they get most of the way on car in car and then they break yeah. down. Anyway, sorry, yeah, please maybe, continue. Yeah, maybe they were taking lots of breaks and like Yeah. You, okay, so uh, there is an alternative, I think, mm-hmm. in, in this scenario. So in Mexico, there are people, indigenous people who uh, are long distance runners and long distance walkers. I don't, I don't know if it's like more than one tribe or I don't know, but that book born to run talks about these people a lot, yeah, but the they barefoot. make, yeah. Yeah. So they make sandals out of old tires. Yeah. And that's what they wear because sandals. So, so the thing about hiking 20 miles a day, day after day is it's less like backpacking and more like running a marathon. So you want to think, would I run a marathon in this? Because whatever you're wearing will rub you to death. Yeah. So boots will rub you to death. So say trail runners aren't accessible. If you made sandals out of old tires, those are so minimalist that they might not rub you to death the way boots would, but they would, you would be able to make new pairs and they would last a long time. So actually people in Mexico have maybe figured it out. Like that might be the answer is sandals made out of tires. I, I consciously believe you. But I've been wearing boots my entire life. And in my mind, they're like, I mean, in my head, the compromise is that I used to wear lace-up steel-toe boots. And now I wear, like, tactical boots with a zipper down the side that are, like, mostly mesh and stuff, you know? And in my mind, I'm like, these are clearly the perfect boots. These are clearly the best boots for every situation. How could they possibly be better? Like, I accept that you have the experience and you're probably right. My brain won't accept it. Like, would you would you run a marathon in them? I don't have the lung capacity to run. <laughs> I have never been able to, so I can't. That is a meaningless uh, thing for me, right? Because I just like, I I've never been able to run. I mean, I mean, I can run, right? But I like, I lose. I can't imagine. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I used to just like, I whatever i used to just be an idiot and like kind of an asshole and so i'd just be like oh whatever like why are people complaining just toughen up just wear steel-toed shoes all the time whatever bullshit and i'm no longer on that page but in my mind i'm like oh it's fucking i don't know yeah so so i have two more thoughts about footwear yeah yeah one so the reason backpackers used to always wear boots is because their gear was so heavy. So when I go hunting, yeah. I actually had to buy my first pair of hiking boots because if I'm yeah. carrying a 60 pound pack, you know how we occasionally roll our ankles when we walk and it's not a big deal. It doesn't yeah, yeah. sprain your ankle. You're like, whoop. Yeah, um, if, you if you yeah. carry a 60 pound pack, it's like much, you're much more likely to sprain your ankle. So that's the point of boots. So when I'm yeah. hunting, I only walk like eight miles a day and it still like hurts my feet in, because the boots really hurt my feet. Yeah. But it keeps me from worrying about uh, spraining my ankle if I roll it. Yeah. Whereas with the backpacking gear that exists now, it's not as heavy. So you can roll your ankle without spraying it. So you can wear trail runners. So in this scenario, if your pack was really heavy, you probably would want to wear boots and then you would just compromise on how many miles per day you could walk and your feet would be in pain. That makes sense. And then my other thought 
But but hopefully in this scenario, you would be able to create this sort of hybrid kit with all your knowledge of like yeah. hunting, bushcrafting and ultralight backpacking right. and like the materials we still have access to that your pack, maybe your pack wouldn't be crazy right. heavy. And then my other thought is, so in Mexico, people, there are people who run long distances who create these sandals out of old tires, which is a resource that will be around for a bit. And then in North America where it's, or like, you know, further North, North America mm-hmm. where it's colder Traditionally, people had footwear that they made that they could walk long distances in that also was warmer, like things like moccasins and different more Mm -hmm. like flexible, comfy footwear that also wasn't a boot. So I think even if you didn't have access to trail runners, I don't think the only option would be boots for their durability. I think you could make like some sort of shoe. Yeah, Okay, that's my theory. No, no, no. This is, this is really interesting. Because <laughs> I'm like imagining like the ultimate setup in my mind would be like uh, non-shiny materials. Like, like, because like in my head, I've referred, I've heard it referred to as like um, outdoors gear being either like tactical or technical um, and mm-hmm. sort of an aesthetic difference in a lot of ways. And like, like everyone's wearing fleece, but like some people are wearing camo fleece and some people are wearing, you know, bright colored fleece or whatever, right? Um, except for me, I'm walking around in fucking hoodie and this is, I'm slightly smarter than that. Um, <laughs> it's not true. Last time I went hiking, I was just my Carhartt coat over a hoodie, but <laughs> it also wasn't long distance. So it doesn't really matter. I mean, okay. if you know, there's not going to be cold rain, you yeah. know, you probably won't get hypothermia. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, I guess you're already North, if you had to leave on foot, you would be going for sort of a hybrid setup. I guess if it depends on the situation. Now I'm already like answering for you in my head. Never mind. Yeah. Let's say, like, let's say mm-hmm. I had to walk into Canada, for yeah. example, which it would be really easy to sneak. I'm not allowed in Canada, but it would be really easy to sneak because of like, like there's one protest in particular on my record mm-hmm. that they like don't like from like 2003. Yeah. And then there's all the like misdemeanor train stuff from my twenties, but that's old enough. They don't, they don't care about it, but they really mm-hmm. don't like this protest thing. So they just mm-hmm. don't let me in, but it's really, it would be really easy to sneak into Canada at the Alaska Canada border. Right. So let's say that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing about Alaska is there are a lot of really big rivers to cross. So you would mm-hmm. have to consider that like would you either carry a pack raft which would add weight like between the pack raft and the paddle and like a pfd if you have it like you know that would add like what's a pfd 15 pounds personal flotation oh, like a, yeah just like a life, life jacket vest. cool yeah mm-hmm. or would you you know just build a raft every time you got to a massive river and just tr- like just mm-hmm. case by case basis like troubleshoot like trying to cross these rivers so and then the another consideration would be, so wherever you are, if you decide to go on a long journey, like where you are, for mm-hmm. example, you'd want to know how the plant communities change at different elevations. That would help you plan your route. Mm-hmm. Like if you were like at this one elevation, there's this really thorny brush that's impossible to get through and really terrible. Right. And so if, as you were passing through that elevation, you would have want to find like a road or a trail or something that goes through it as you're making your route. And then if yeah. you were like, well, at this elevation, it's like this open forest that's really nice. So then you would like plan your route as much as you could through the through the landscape that was easier walking or you would be like there's these old roads like Alaska doesn't have many roads but like other places have a lot of old logging roads and mining roads so like finding those you know yeah planning your route and then for me it's pretty rainy in the summer so I guess I'd have to, I'd want to have like a, a rain jacket and rain pants and uh, trash bags to keep all my stuff dry and mm-hmm. good synthetic layers that were warm, even when they were wet. Yeah. Um, if I have a down sleeping bag, I'd want to make sure, uh, to have like really good trash bag waterproofing system for my sleeping bag, and my backpack. So it would stay dry. And then as far as like, um, fuel goes, I guess it depends on what's available. Maybe like backpacking fuel isn't available. Maybe I'm just making fires. And uh, the challenge would just be drying out if it happens to just rain for two months straight, like figuring out when I can dry out, um, which maybe would be a matter of like making fires if the rain Mm -hmm. never stops. Uh, So staying dry to prevent hypothermia would probably be like the biggest challenge. And then getting 
over these big rivers. Yeah. And then for food, if backpacking food wasn't available, I have no idea how I would survive. I think, okay, this is what I would do. <laughs> I would have, let's say that things have collapsed to the point where there is no more, um, no one is uh, regulating hunting. So for example, mm-hmm. like as an Alaskan resident, even though I'm an Alaskan resident, like I can't hunt seal. The only people who can hunt seal and whale are like people in native communities mm-hmm. in really specific areas. And so I can't hunt seal, but realistically, if one is to live off the land in Alaska, you're going to get most of your calories from fat from sea mammals. So I would need to have figured that out in advance. Like I would need like seal oil Mm -hmm. and berries and dried salmon and dried meat, but I would need a lot of fat to get most of my calories from because there aren't any carbs up here that you can eat. All right. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that would be my strategy. Okay. Okay. That all makes sense to me. Yeah. In my mind, it's like, because where I live is like, if I had to walk to Canada, I would be skirting back and forth across roads. And on the other hand, maybe all the bridges across all the rivers is exactly where they would like, you know, the militias would be laying ambushes or whatever, you know. Um, So actually maybe all that stuff that I've never even, I never even occurred to me that there's something called a pack raft until today. It's a neat concept. You could bring a pool floaty. Yeah, yeah, totally. Just raid a CVS. Yeah. Um, little Walgreens. And... <laughs> I'm planning, I'm, I'm saving up to buy a, um, a freeze dryer. <laughs> this is my like wingnut prepper thing that I really want. They're like, um, they started about uh, $2,500 for home ones. And then, and then I can just give everyone backpacking food forever. Cool. But that's a... It would work better if I was combining with, you know, honestly, if you're in a city and around people who dumpster dive, that's where a freeze dryer shines. Take your free food and preserve it forever. Or if you garden a lot or grow a lot of food. Okay, well, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but I think we're kind of running down on time. We've almost figured it out. I know. (laughs) It's a combo of all of the, you have to multi-class between... um, ultralight and hunter and then you're pretty much good um and with a little bit of bushcrafter which i feel like the hunter is a little bit closer to go ahead yeah there's definitely a lot of skills i don't have that would be useful in this scenario like Mm -hmm. i can't snare a rabbit that would be really useful i don't i don't like i guess i would want to be hunting but like i don't know if i would have enough bullets or like what kind of gun or if I would, I would, I have like a bow and arrow. I don't know enough about hunting to know like what kind of hunting I would be doing. Or if I would just be carrying enough like seal oil and dried moose meat to like make the whole journey. Yeah. You know? Uh, So I don't know. I don't know about that bit. Yeah. No, I, I basically like, I've already decided that my veganism lasts until it's like me or the animal, you know? And I actually believe very strongly in that, like, I actually don't think there's anything ethically wrong with hunting at all. I just have no personal interest in in eating it. But I um uh for anyone who's listening is wondering why a vegan says that. In this case, I I believe that um you're not raising the animal in captivity. It lives free, whatever people eat things, that's fine. This is the thing we get the most angry people writing about is whenever we talk about either veganism or non-veganism. Oh no. <laughs> it's what people get really upset about. Um, and vegans always hate me because I'm like a self-hating vegan or whatever because I'm like, don't think there's anything ethically wrong with eating meat. Anyway, I just avoid thinking about all that stuff, which doesn't work because then I can't just be like magically after the apocalypse. I like, I'm a decent shot. So at least I have that, right? But like, I don't know fucking how to stalk or dress or cook, you know, but it'll just, I'll just magically learn it in a survival situation. That's always the best time to learn. Yeah. They say that people learn fastest when you're like a little bit stressed out. So also you, you live in an area where you can grow a lot of food. So like you wouldn't be as reliant in like Alaska that you can't grow grains. You can't grow beans. Like you can't, there's, Like it's, it's, it's a uh, traditionally people lived off animal fat for most of their calories. Yeah, so, totally. Yeah. Um, I think it would sort of like quickly revert to that. Like, okay, we have a lot of fish, <laughs> yeah. um, but where you are, um, it would make sense to like grow a lot of like grain and stuff. And that would be really good food to yeah. have. 
Yeah, I'm gonna have so many freeze dried potatoes. Just yeah, fucking tire <laughs> basement full of freeze dried potatoes. What could go wrong? Well, is there anything uh, last last thoughts or you know do you want to talk about you want to advertise your books again or talk about the the stuff that you run or where people can find you? Oh sure, I'll I'll talk about this. Uh, can I talk about this book, this novel I've been working on? Yeah. So, um, but don't I think I think it. it's. Okay, well, no spoilers. Um, It's been really fun to think about, like, everything we've been talking about. Like, if someone is on this long journey, like, what would they have access to? What would still be around? How would they survive? So that's kind of what I try to do. And I I, I kind of, like, I skip over the, like, dark collapsy bits to get to the, like, long journey part because I think that's what's, like, fun and interesting. And I think it gives me a sense of hope to try to be, like, okay, like, what? what will things actually look like? They're like, this is one reason I love the last of us so much too, is because you got to see how they like imagined like, Oh, what would be left in a mall, like a mm-hmm. shutdown mall? Like what stores would have been raided? What would still be left? Like what materials would people have access to? And so I think that's really fun. And she does have a little dog. She has a chihuahua mm-hmm. that ride that rides in her bike pannier. Um, and nothing bad ever happens to the chihuahua. That's good. Nothing bad ever happens to the dog. So that's great. Um, yeah. And I, I think some people, I think, maybe think thinking about this stuff is kind of dark, but I find it really comforting. <laughs> I agree. It's, yeah. 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 <laughs> There's so many reasons. Yeah. I also, you know, I, I've read too that in a survival situation, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what skills we have. What matters is like our ability to organize with other people because. Yeah. That's obviously how we've survived to this point is, you know, we're not rugged individualists. We're, we're like really highly social animals. And so no matter what your skills are, no matter where you live, no matter what you have access to where you live right now, like I think what humans are really good at are sharing their skills in moments of crisis and organizing together. And, you know, so if you um, like, you're going to have a bunch of freeze dried potatoes and then maybe your friend will know how to like, deal with puncture wounds or maybe you all also know that you know what I mean yeah (laughs) but like together and then maybe you have another friend who's really good at like hunting or whatever and so when people come together I think that's a really magical thing too you know like I don't know anything about herbs but that's going to be really useful someday and yeah hopefully I'll like know know somebody who does I I agree and that is essentially one of the mottos of this show is how you know even the like the prepper thing about like I'm gonna have all of this stuff, like the most useful thing I could have in any different disaster scenario is someone else. Like, even if that other person has like no skills, if we can talk, <laughs> like that will help my mental health, you know? And I'm saying that as like someone ah. who's like kind of low-key a hermit. I'm not very low-key about it. Um <laughs> yeah. So Yeah. Okay. Well, what are the names of your books again? The first one is Through Hiking Will Break Your Heart, and that's about the Pacific Crest Trail. And then The Sunset Route is about uh, the years in which I first met you. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> my years riding freight trains and and about my childhood in Alaska. And then this one I've been working on doesn't have a title yet, but hopefully cool. maybe it'll be out at the end of the year. I don't even know. So I hope so. I want to read uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is really fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you should tell people about it in person or on the internet or in graffiti format. If you do the latter, you should you should tell us. But not blame us if you get caught. Only graffiti property you own. Does it still count as graffiti? I'm not sure. You can also support this podcast by supporting us on Patreon. We're patreon.com slash strangers in the tangled wilderness, which is the name of the publisher that puts this out, uh, as well as several other podcasts, including the Anarcho Geek Power Hour, a podcast called Strangers in the Tangled Wilderness, which has a, a new episode every month with different pieces of fiction and memoir and stuff, and some other ones that are coming up soon. You can hear about soon. And if you support us there, there's all kinds of cool stuff that you get. And one of those things is we say thank you on the podcast to some of the backers. And in particular, I would like to thank 
Hans and Haas the dog and Micaia and Chris and Sam, Kirk, Eleanor, Jennifer, Starro, Cat J, Chelsea, Dana, David, Nicole, Mickey, Paige, SJ, Sean, Hunter, Theo, Boise Mutual Aid, Milica, Paparuna, Allie, and Paige. You all make this happen and you pay for the person who produces it and you pay for the person who transcribes it and the person who does the audio editing because people deserve to get paid for their labor and you let that happen. And that's cool. And I will talk to you all soon. Bye.